Every now and then, uh, a song and a circumstance seem to get so closely linked together that it's almost impossible to think of one without the other. I reckon a modern-day example of this sort of thing happening is the Elton John song, Candle in the Wind. Elton John originally recorded that song way back in the early 70s. He did it in, in uh, memory of uh, Marilyn Monroe. It, quite popular at the time, sold lots of copies. But it was 30 years later uh, when Elton John tweaked the lyrics a little bit. Uh, some of you might remember he performed it at Lady Diana's funeral. And that is when the song really got people's attention. It suddenly became the second biggest uh, selling single of all time worldwide. And as a result, for lots and lots of people, that song is now forever associated with Diana. At least in Elton John's mind it is, because he has vowed to never ever sing the updated version of the song again, unless he is specifically asked by Diana's sons. Every now and then a song and a moment in history become so closely bound together it is almost impossible to not think of one without the other. Now friends, we have reached an example of that sort of thing happening in the Bible. Because this morning in our countdown to the most quoted Psalms of the New Testament, we've reached Psalm 22. And even though this is a song written something like a thousand years before Jesus, no Christian can hear this psalm read and not think of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because it is, of course, the psalm he quoted as he hung alone in the dark, pinned to a cross. And I wonder why. With only minutes left to live, with 150 psalms to choose from, why quote this one? What's so special about Psalm 22? Well, for a start, the context of the psalm gives us some clues. Because with Psalm 22, we are now back into Book 1 of the Psalms, which hopefully you might remember from the last few weeks. Book 1 of the Psalms is made up almost exclusively of psalms from King David, and in particular, they are made up of psalms of struggle of King David. And that's a context worth noting because... This psalm certainly fits the mood. It's a psalm of struggle, certainly. But more to the point for us this morning, it's not about just anyone's struggles. This is a psalm about King David's struggles. This is a psalm about King David going through dreadful anguish and pain and wretchedness. And it's helpful for us to keep that perspective in mind because Psalm 22 is not primarily intended to be a psalm that you and I can relate to. This is a psalm that we are primarily spectators of. This is a psalm intended to be a song that tells us about God's king in his sufferings. And they are desperate sufferings indeed. Look at with me at how the content of the psalm unfolds in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. The psalm opens in utter despair. This is a dark place. This is a truly God-forsaken place. This is a place where you keep crying out for help night and day and no one comes. 
not even God. You know he's there. You know he could help. You know in a blink of an eye he could deliver you. But he doesn't. And so the psalm opens with King David virtually drowning in a sea of grief. But his faith is not going to go under without a fight. And so as the first part of the psalm now unfolds, we get drawn into this massive tussle that is happening within David's thought world as he repeatedly interrupts his train of thought with memories of hope. He's desperately trying to pull himself back from the edge of complete and utter hopelessness, so he starts to preach to himself. He starts to remind himself about just who God is. Verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted. They weren't disappointed. It, It is an insidious and it is an emotionally draining cycle that the psalm is now going to take us on. It is the cycle that as his, as his difficulties press in on him, so terrible are they that David all but crumples under them. He all but spirals into complete and utter darkness, all but gives up on his faith, but then he crawls back from the brink and tries to regain his composure. He's trying to think more clearly about God. He's trying to muster what is left of his faith. But it's hard. And suddenly it's too much. The pain is too great and his soul just starts to collapse all over again. He starts to go under all over again. Sure, God has rescued others. He's not going to rescue me. I'm a worm, verse 6, not a man. Scorned by men, despised by people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. The downward spiral is picking up speed. It's not just God who has forsaken him, it's everyone who sees him. They mock him, they hurl insults at him, and he withers under their gaze. I am a worm. But then, in another monumental effort... Can you believe it? He again interrupts himself. He again pulls himself together. He again struggles to preach to himself. He again puts the brakes on his distress, tries to rein in the panic. His faith is putting up a massive fight. Yet you brought me out of the womb, verse 9. You you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. He's reminding himself that even in the womb, God has been with David. Perhaps he's even rehearsing Psalm 139. You know that one, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame is not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. And yet even as he is trying here to keep a rein on his despair, even as he tries to cling to the slender thread of what is left of his faith, By the end of verse 11, his mind starts to cave in all over again. This is a hideous struggle. Do not be far from me, 
Verse 11. For trouble is near me. There's no one to help. There's no one to help. See, the spiral is starting again. Everything is starting to collapse in again. There's, There's no one to help. And it's with verses 12 to 18, it almost seems as if he's going under for the third and final time. This is the part of the psalm which perhaps reaches its most terrifying moments. Uh, Enemies abound. Enemies are listed off. Bulls, lions, dogs, encircling, piercing, tearing, gloating. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. My heart is melting away. Verse 15, my strength's gone. Can you see the turmoil of the psalm? Can you feel the emotional exhaustion of what is going on here? Of just trying to keep control of your faith. The the inner torment of lurching between feelings of utter misery and then desperately reaching out for feelings of hope as the psalmist just flounders within their grief. And then just when you think they've completely gone under for that third time, he pulls himself together, breaks through the surface to to suck in some clean air of comfort. And it's with this third Herculean effort of trying to seek comfort that something quite stunning happens in the psalm. Because in verse 19, the psalm suddenly flips into an astounding declaration of deliverance. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, the NIV, which I suspect most of us have, hides the grandeur of verse 21. The ESV is better when it says, Save me from the mouth of lions, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. It's an affirmation in this verse. It's a statement. You you have rescued me. You've done it. And from that sudden declaration of deliverance, the rest of the psalm now just explodes into a celebration as the repercussions of David's salvation are now sung about. Because remember, this is not a psalm about just anyone. This is a song about a king and not just any king. This is a song about the king of God's people. And when God's king is rescued, it carries enormous ramifications for God's people as well. And that's what the psalm goes on to express as you get this language that that runs through the benefits and the consequences of God's king being delivered. Look down with me at your Bibles to verse 22. I want you to notice this ever-growing picture of deliverance. Look down at verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who serve the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. Look down at verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. 
Look down at verse 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. You hear the reverberations of this king's deliverance? Can you see the ever-growing circles of salvation? Israel, the nations, the ends of the earth, and even beyond that, to future generations, to even people yet unborn. They will celebrate this king, for he has gone through the despair with his faith intact, and he has been delivered. He's done it. This is a majestic psalm. It starts with despair, ends with deliverance. It starts with God's king caught in crippling grief, barely clinging to his faith. But he does. And in the middle of the song, God's king is saved. And so is triggered off a world-engulfing kingdom of salvation. And is your mind already racing ahead to Jesus? He wants you to. That's why he quoted this psalm on the cross. Because by quoting it on the cross, Jesus owned this song as his own. As he hung there, pinned to the wood, as he cried out the first words of this psalm, he was declaring that that sign that they nailed up above him, you know the one that read the King of the Jews? He was declaring it's true. He's a king, he's the king of God's people and on that cross the despair and the deliverance of Psalm 22 were finding ultimate fulfilment. In his gospel Mark tells us that at the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour and at the ninth hour Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is very telling. In the final moments of his life, as the strength ebbed out of his body, as the pain began to steal his very breath, he could have quoted the very next psalm. You know Psalm 23? The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be one, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. But he didn't quote that psalm, because that psalm doesn't do justice to the turmoil he was going through. So he reached for Psalm 22. A psalm which opens the door just a little bit for us to see something of the emotional upheaval of our Saviour on the cross. As he hung there, naked and humiliated, gasping for air, his back shredded to a pulp because of the flogging, Enemies gambling over the only thing he owned. The indignity of losing all your bodily functions as you physically unravel. The loneliness of seeing your friends standing off in the distance, watching, not helping. And all the while trying to stop your faith from completely unravelling. As you call to God who doesn't answer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
I'd be the first to admit, I don't understand this. In what sense can God the Father forsake God the Son? How does it work that two persons inside the Trinity could ever be separated? I don't know. What I do know is that as Jesus hung terrified on the cross, something profoundly traumatic was happening inside God. Because the rest of the Bible makes very clear that as he hung there, Jesus had my sins, your sins, the sins of all his people on his shoulders, wearing them as if they were his own. And that's why he experienced the utter abandonment of God on the cross. He was experiencing the punishment of our sin. That's what punishment of sin deserves, separation from God, being forsaken by God. It's what we deserve, but on the cross, it's what Jesus experienced in our place. And because he experienced it in our place, because he went through the despair of the first half of the psalm in our place, that means that the second half of the psalm, the deliverance of the second half, has now become true in exceeding measure. As the psalm that Jesus owned as his own goes on to celebrate, he is a suffering king who has brought in a world-engulfing kingdom of salvation, for he has done it. That final phrase, he has done it, it's, it's actually quite similar to the other words that Jesus also cried out from the cross. It is finished. It's so similar, in fact, that the famous preacher Spurgeon even speculated that Jesus may have actually recited the entire psalm from the cross, but that for the sake of space, the gospel writers only chose to include the opening and the closing lines. I'm not sure that's the case. What I am sure of is that Jesus reached for Psalm 22 on the cross, not only because it opens in despair, but because it closes in deliverance. It celebrates the establishment of a world-engulfing kingdom of salvation, for he has done it. And you and I, sitting in this room, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world from where Jesus quoted this psalm, we're caught up in this. See, surely one of the lessons of this psalm must be the incredible love that God has for us. That Jesus would, would go through the distress of this first half of the psalm for us. How much must Jesus love you? But I actually wonder whether the more dominant lesson of this psalm, because of the way it ends, I think it not only humbles us with what Jesus endured for us, it ought to enthuse us with what he has achieved for us. Because you did hear the end of the psalm, you did hear the ever-growing circle of salvation, the, the magnitude of what Jesus actually did. Please use this psalm to broaden your minds a little bit and drink in the size of the kingdom that this psalm celebrates. Because, yes, you're an individual. Yes, every single individual one of us must come as an individual in trust and obedience to King Jesus. We must do it alone. We, we, we must do it for ourselves. But once we have done that, can you see that once we have done that, we have joined into something absolutely huge? As when Jesus on the cross 
created this psalm, if there was ever anything on his mind other than the sheer horror of being abandoned by his father, if there was ever anything on his mind, it was this world-engulfing kingdom that his suffering would bring in. And so on the cross, through laboured breaths, he cries out Psalm 22. A song that starts in crippling pain ends in celebration. A song that starts with a deserted, suffering king finishes with a worldwide kingdom of salvation. For he has done it. That is the lesson I would love you to leave this building with this morning. That you are part of a worldwide kingdom of salvation reaching all nations and even unborn generations. That this week, as you hand someone an invitation to the women's Christmas event, as you give out a copy of who is king to a child at your door tonight, as you help out with crossroads, as you head off to work determined to put in a good day's work and not be dragged into the politics uh, because you want your colleagues to see your good deeds and be attracted to Jesus, as you support friends through Bible college, as you come along to our meetings and offer hospitality to newcomers, as you struggle in your thought world to abstain from evil desires, as you head off for a schoolie celebration, determined to do it differently so as to honour God and, and be able to testify to the hope that you have. As you sit alone in your room, praying to God for your unbelieving mum and dad or children or friends. This week, would you remember the ending of Psalm 22? You're not alone. You are part of a worldwide kingdom of salvation. And that Psalm 22 is about Jesus, but you make an appearance in there. You're there in verse 27. We're part of the ends of the earth who have remembered and turned to the Lord. You're there again in verse 30. We're part of the future generations who have been told about the Lord. And here in this very room this morning is part of the kingdom that was ignited at the cross. So praise him in the congregation. Declare his name to everyone. Make sure we do our bit to proclaim his righteousness to even people yet unborn. For he has done it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this extraordinary song that takes us into the very mind of our suffering king as he bore the burden of our sins so as to ignite a kingdom of salvation that we could be part of by your grace. Father, we praise you amongst ourselves. We praise you even to unborn generations. Father, thank you that your son, our king,
went through that despair so as to bring us deliverance through his death. Thank you that he's done it. Amen.